You're listening to the Carlstein Theatre Podcast. This is Michelle Donkin. Andrew's off and about again today interviewing people for Series 4. So it's just me today introducing this episode of the podcast where Andrew chats to Anna Burt from Radio Reverb's Brighton Book Club programme, which is also a podcast. Enjoy! Hello, who are you and what do you do? Hello, um, my name is Anna Burt. Um, I am many things. Um, master of none. I work in book publishing and have done for the last five or six years. Um, I work for, I'm self-employed and freelance and work for several different publishers in marketing, um, some editorial commissioning and creative. I'm also the founder of the West Hill Writers Group, which meet every Friday for two long terms, two or three, sometimes ten week terms a year. Um, I also am the host of the Brighton Book Club, which is which goes out on Radio Reverb every month, um, which is um, also a podcast. Um, I do bits of consultancy on the side and work with um, individuals and organisations in marketing strategy. That's a very good CV. <laughs> it's um, not bad. It's I not wanted bad. a portfolio career and I seem to have built one. I'm, I'm going to dive into that line straight away. You wanted a portfolio career. Is that, is that actually a, That's a thing actually that you wanted? That's actually a thing. So, so what, when, where, how old were you when you, even if you didn't phrase it like that, that, that back then, that you wanted a portfolio career? I knew upon graduating that... What was that your degree? It was American and English Literature at University of East Anglia. And I knew that I never wanted to do one thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not... And it's not that I can't commit to it, it's just that I, it doesn't appeal to me to do the same thing every day, for every day to look the same. Life is short and I wanted my life to be as varied and interesting as, I, as it could be. So quite early on, um, I've never ever in my whole life, apart from when I was working in restaurants, worked the same job five days a week. I've mostly worked full time, but, um, but my week is always split. And of course it's challenging at times because you have to use a lot of different parts of your brain and be able to switch quite, quick, quite quickly. But it, every day is different and I enjoy every day. You know, I don't wake up on a Monday and think, oh God, it's yeah. Monday. I have to go and sit at a desk for seven hours times by five. Um, you know, Brighton is kind of my office, which I really like. Now, uh, I quite often hear and I quite often have been given the advice that if you want to make money, i.e. literally earn money, mm-hmm. and be given a job, then it doesn't do well to be known for different things. Mm. It doesn't do well to be known as a mechanic and a writer and mm. an artist and an improviser, which is presumably advice that you would shudder from what would be your take on that well my take on that would be that although I do many different things they've always been in the same industry so even when I was um, you know I was also co-running the bookish supper salon which is a supper club but all of that is linked to books right books and food and books and you know and the book club podcast is about books so you know they're all slightly different disciplines but they're all in the same industry and I think in publishing especially if you're working for one of the big publishers um, you would only be working you know I would have a small role in editorial and be doing very kind of blinkered work right yeah if I was a designer I would just be doing design but I actually think that in the publishing industry which is the only one that I can really speak to um, I could I could take a book from commission through 
to you know to market yeah. it and know how to do that and understand the structure of it whether or not that's that's what I do for a company I can see how all of that works and I know how it works so in that way I can see it's positive I think you know I kind of joke about being master of none but I think it's good to have a something that you can specifically focus on yeah. and then work from that so everything I do it's kind of is pretty much book based but then marketing in general is marketing right and marketing is selling and awareness and finding audiences for things and I think that that the skills that you get when doing it with books which is actually quite difficult because it's it's not the most easy or sensical industry um, you can apply that to then different areas so I, I also do general marketing consultancy which is product based right I imagine then that if I was to say um give you a reasonably for one whatever this word means an easy job to do uh that isn't in your skill set but is demonstrably easy you might sort of rail at that but if i was to say oh by tomorrow i need this thing that you're unprepared for that's within the publishing industry even though you'd be going into blind you'd be confident in your own instincts looking after you and you could go in quite for want of a better word unprepared and go no I know what I'm doing here even if I don't know what's going on here yeah and and I'm not a kind of overly confident person at all but I feel confident standing in a room talking about books and talking about publishing because I know that I'm good at it and I know that um, I know what I'm talking about because also I've been part of the industry for five or six years which has been a massive point of change yes in the industry and so have had to adapt and had to be part of that so that doesn't make you know other things will make me massively nervous but that is not one of them what was the very first book that you remember reading so much that it got a bit tattered and um, covers fell off and whatever I was um, I was sorting through books recently, and I found the first series of books that I ever read, and by Joan Lingard, and they were about the troubles in Ireland, and they were about a boy and a girl. One was Catholic, one was Protestant. I actually can't remember what one was which. And I read the series as a kid, and I remember, and I think it was a bit above my age at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think I just remember feeling because there was sex in it and relationships, and it was kind of and politics, obviously. And I just loved them so I think the Joan Lingard Beyond the Barricade series they're called so I remember reading them and what other books I read I I read I read the first few Harry Potters I'm a Harry I'm Harry Potter age yeah and um and loved them as a kid um and then kind of stopped at number four because I'm hip like that yeah Um, I'm I was reading recently about because obviously it's fashionable every couple of years to rail against um, Harry Potter, uh-huh. but somebody pointing out how what a unique experience it is to be reading a book that you know, you genuinely know, that millions of, of mm. kids your age are reading the same book at the yeah. same time. And that is quite that, that happens very rarely. You only get that occasionally with TV, with uh, like football or the Christmas Doctor Who. You, uh, you don't often get moments where... People it's a shared experience yeah, yeah. and I think that's that's what I would never genuinely slag off anything like Harry Potter that encourages kids to read yeah. I don't care what anyone reads as long as they read something and and how amazing is it that everything that has come from Harry Potter has come from one person's brain yeah. isn't that you know crazy all of this you know the, the franchise of it all has just come from one person's brain and that is you know not making any puns magical to yeah. me whether or not the writing's good is by the by I think that's a really important point, certainly for writers. Uh, There is a certain series of books that has um, a number in it and a colour in it um, that has been mocked because the writing may be substandard. Mm -hmm. But my response to that is 
those, if you want to call them badly written books, those badly written books are significantly better than the perfect books that I haven't actually got around to writing yet. I have a lot to say about this. I'm really glad you mentioned it. We can call it Fifty Shades. Yeah, yeah. Let's just name it, right? Yeah. Oh, I meant something... No. <laughs> no. Look, look at those figures. Yeah. Look at those figures. Do not laugh at them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. This is what I mean. Oh, yeah. I look at those figures and I think, you show me a book that has sold that amount mm. that quickly. She... And again, create the friend, uh, films absolutely. and uh, sequels. I actually, I haven't read them, so I can't... I mean, I'm, I'm aware that the writing is probably bad, mm-hmm. but look at the amount of people that that got reading. Look at, look at what that has also done for um, authors who self-publish. She yes. then, you know, she self-published it as Twilight fan fiction. And you can look at that and think, right, if that is the power that one person can have doing that, it was really empower, empowering for many authors. And then, off the back of that, publishers are going to go to her. You know, she might well have submitted to publishers. I don't actually know that story behind it. But then they're then buying her paperback rights, and yeah. she is in a position of power. So if we're talking about creativity and being able to monetize your creativity, that is ultimate, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a definitely a thing we, uh, there can be a whole another episode argue about the pros and cons of self-pub. Oh, not. I'd love to talk about it. But, but it is important to note that, at least in that one instance... Mm. She wasn't getting published, she self-published, and the publishing houses went, actually, no, do you know what, we want a bit of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really valuable. And also, because um, about the whole idea that women particularly were buying it on their Kindle because they didn't want to be embarrassed reading that, mm-hmm. which is the general story. And I'm not sure that I agree with that, because I remember in that summer... Seeing for people, lots of people actually holding the paperback, mm. there was no embarrassment about that. And, and if, and I very rarely see Kindles being read in public. Actually, um, for, you know, I have a Kindle myself, um, but I don't see many other Kindles. I see paperbacks and hardbacks being written, read on transport. And yeah, I just remember everybody quite happily reading Fifty Shades in public. And I think it was sexually liberating for women. Yeah. And if anything is sexually liberating for women. I'm pretty pretty much down with it. Okay, let's However, talk about that. Yeah, I guess there. a lot of the themes. Then then there's the counter argument that it's um, actually. I mean, this is more about the films. That it's actually quite unfeminist, and it's about um, yeah. you know owning women and etc etc. But I mean, you know, <laughs> sales and sex toys went up massively, yeah. and that's great. And even if there can be a response or a a backlash to use a clumsy phrase against uh, Fifty Shades where um, I remember there being lots of like placards on um, bookshelves that were selling Fifty Shades people would like punks of the bookshelves said there's much better erotica online and it's free and and that in itself is a liberation Uh, but also on that note if there's always a a decade centric book that is so-called sexual liberating so you have uh, Flowers in the Attic from the 70s you have um, all way back uh, Judy Cooper whatever and it seems to me that each decade finds its kink from whatever that (laughs) book that was being passed around and generally stealing their mother's copy uh, and which means that this next generation they may not have the kinks that they want to have because of something like Fifty Shades 
Perhaps, but I don't think it was young people that were reading it. I think eventually it might have been. I think Maybe. eventually they were stealing their, their parents' copy, their mum's copy. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it, the thing is, is, is it's all about commercial viability and markets, isn't it? So I would love for every young woman out there to be reading young, like to be reading feminist erotica by like women and non-binary people and things that are really like, that are really empowering, but they're not necessarily the books that that have the mass market potential like no. Fifty Shades do, so uh, I don't know. I get the impression that in a very small way Kat Moran is doing that in her How To Be Famous series. Yeah, yeah, I think so, I think so. And however, I think her audience is closer to my age That's true, than yeah. maybe closer to like really younger women. Um, I think they're looking at a lot of um, Instagrammers and YouTubers and people that, you know, don't have such a traditional background as Caitlin Moran had. Yeah, uh, although the, the, the film or TV series of that might change that. I think there's one coming out next year. Oh, OK. That will be uh, looking at that. A soft link then about uh, Fifty Shades and what, what are the books that are currently on your bedside? Oh, that's... Um, I am reading a book called Graceland by... Bethan Roberts, who's a local writer, um, and it's about the relationship between Elvis Presley and his mother. Ah. Um, for um, my book podcast that's um, next year, and I'm also reading a collection of short stories by Naomi Ishigaro called Escape Roots, which are very good and kind of uncanny. Um, I have recently read um, for the show Dean Atter's Pink, Pink Flamingo, which is so good for a younger audience and it's about um, coming of age coming of sexuality it's about drag and it's about Brighton and it, I just absolutely loved it I also just read a book by Sarah Andrews called Outside um, which is um, kind of a similar vibe to Emma Donoghue's Room about a girl that's been stuck in a room for a very long time and it's about her getting out and coming to terms with that all through her voice it's just incredible so obviously a lot of those books you're reading for uh, the um, Ready Reverb show was that the intention or did you still get to read for absolute undulated pleasure? I haven't read for absolute undulated pleasure for five years basically there is every book that I read is for a reason but actually I mean then again but then it is a pleasure to me so so part of the reason that I choose the books that I choose on the podcast is because I want to read them and then it almost gives me an excuse to read them because I have to read a lot of submissions for work and have to be catching up with the reading for the books that I'm working on at least getting a sense of them by reading them so pure undulated pleasure even if I choose a book to read for pleasure it's because that book is doing particularly well in a particular market so and I want to see how, how that's working your reading of it is doing double duty you're sort of um... I have never I guess it must be like with you guys with watching theatre like you cannot watch something without analysing it I remember the first time or one of the earliest times that I went to see a play with a lighting technician and the set was already on display and I, uh, as we went in and my head was down on the set, their head was up towards the ceiling because they were already checking out the way the lighting rig was being set up. So I think, yeah, that you, you can almost never switch off Mm-mm. entirely. Um, Which is why I think it's important to choose a business, to work in a business that you love. So it, the old gag being then you never work a day in your life. You yes. sort of, it's always... <laughs> which, which you do. <laughs> which, you, which you do, but it, it, it's good to be frustrated by something that you genuinely enjoy yeah, exactly. and frustrated by... I was going to say hamburgers for no particular good reason. I have no problem with hamburgers. Um, but yes. <laughs> um, so 
let's talk a little bit about the, that sort of that portfolio. You uh, the West Hill Writers, which yes, is a, a I'd retreat. Like to talk about that. Um, so I run um, retreats every few months, and they are day retreats. So I basically. My whole thinking behind founding the whole West Hill, West Hill Writers was I actually lived behind the West Hill at the time. I don't anymore, up in Seven Dials. Um, and I wanted to create a regular writing group that wasn't snobby, wasn't just because I wanted to join one, right? And that's how I came to start it. I wanted to join one. I couldn't find one that just looked down to earth and decent and led by the people that were in it. So I did minimal research. Um, made up um made up some graphics and flyers and designs emailed a bunch of contacts um and filled it up and it's never been under full yeah. since which is amazing and i've been running it since last september um so i have about 15 60 i've got 16 students at the moment which is about capacity i wouldn't want anymore and obviously not everyone can come to every group um and i run them for 10 weeks at a time um so we're just coming to the end of, of the first term of this year and every week we have a different theme so it could be writing dialogue um writing un- unreliable narrators writing about animals um i would send them something an article or a piece to read in preparation we talk about that a bit we also critique a member of the group's work for 10 20 minutes every um session then there's 45 minutes at least of uninterrupted writing time um, and I make everyone tea and coffee and then we stop about half an hour it's two hour class about half an hour towards the end we share work we talk about how it was um, and we can ask each other questions or yeah. for feedback um, and then the writing retreats the day retreats came off the back of that that people were um, I could see that my students were writing in class but they weren't able you know to find the time to write outside of class and I was thinking how nice would it be because there's no internet in the hall to basically turn up meet a group every time I run a retreat new different people come um, they they talk about at the beginning what they're working on and what they want to achieve by the end of the day we do our writing stints with breaks lunch is included um, I always have three free places for um, writers on low income in the city and um, by the end of the day it's really great you know I think five hours five hours is like what I run them for so there's kind of about three and a half to four hours writing in there and that seems to be the limit before people just exhaust themselves but it seems it just the space creates itself and the space is um is driven by the people that are in it and that and they're very supportive to each other and kind and they have a laugh and make each other cups of tea do you know what I mean it's a really nice atmosphere and I think uninterrupted writing time in a supportive friendly atmosphere is really important very valuable and i think there's a sense also of it is as you you were indicating earlier it's filling a need that doesn't previously exist or doesn't exist in volume in that writers retreats tend to be quite exclusive uh, even in terms of the time that they occupy because people have families they have jobs and they can't do a a full week of being inside yeah, a hut. Yeah, it's a luxury and a, a privilege. Pen. Yeah, mm. and so the holiday that's a day only. And they're so expensive. And they're so expensive. Mm. And the fact that you're providing these three um, low-income oh, spaces as always. Well, I think that yeah, that becomes very yeah, very valuable and vital. Um, and indeed, yeah, that whole idea, which seems like such a um, prosaic sort of thing, but the idea of the opportunity to have uninterrupted writing they have historically in Brighton and of course elsewhere been writing clubs that have literally just been we've hired a room you come in you shut up you write for two hours you go away again and even those workshops had no feedback or interaction particularly but even those themselves were valuable because people wouldn't be excused to 
just right. Absolutely. I just wanted to take it one step further and I'm really interested in building writing communities and I think it's really important to support each other. Um, you know, a bit like what, what you guys do, which I think is amazing, is there's a real competitiveness there can be and a snobbery about publishing and writing and if you're not published you're not a writer or if you self-publish you're not really an author and all this stuff and actually what it comes down to is people being creative and putting words on a page and that we can all be united in that you know we're not yeah. all writing the same thing and even if we are even more opportunity to support each other because you can read each other's work and know yeah. what, not what they're trying to do I mean that's, that's, that's really important in the sense of yeah, not being in competition with one another mm-hmm. uh, because people who love books love books and they'll, they'll always be hungry for the next thing and some very well written books about 300 pages some of us can devour that in an evening sitting so Mm -hmm. it's not like that we're going to run out of time although I know that I'm going to run out of time before I read all the books that I even own Um, and I do mean it in a very macabre sense I'm just going to run out of time Um, but also we're at a moment now as we record and air this podcast where hashtag writing community on Twitter Mm -hmm. is still currently a pleasant place to live it's not quite I mean there are little pockets but it's still a genuinely supportive environment the, the bots haven't quite got there yet by the time this podcast goes out that may evolve oh you. I hope not but yes but it's, it's, mm. it's genuinely quite a warm environment where people are empowering each other mm. tell me about uh, uh, from West Hill onwards about the writing community in Brighton oh, what's that's your take a really on that that's um, a really good question I think that it's I don't know how if that's <laughs> I feel a bit stuck now and um, there are really great organizations like New Writing South and Creative Future who I personally worked with and um, who work and are funded to empower marginalized writers so people who are perhaps a bit older the LGBTQ plus community um, the BAME community in Brighton then there are incentives like um, City Reads and Young, young City Reads um, which are built to to encourage younger people to read books it's a big big read it's a big shared reading experience and I think these things are really important especially in reaching the underrepresented um, people in society and the and the communities that are struggling financially as well reading is not at the top of their list you know and and it's it's helping kind of get it into the lives of, of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds yeah. and I think what Young City Reads do is amazing um, so they're ones that I can kind of speak to as organizations in terms of as a writer it's a bit more difficult because a lot of it is online and a lot of it is quite solitary and I think that's why I started the group almost as a reaction to that um, so I'm not sure I can really comment on that as a whole but I do know that um, there are some great writers like Astra Bloom who is a really really big on um, bringing people together physically as well as on Twitter yeah. um, and we've we've had a couple of Brighton Writers meetups which have been really nice and productive and I've met some great people and people who I will get on my podcast in the future through doing that and that was just through Twitter through hashtag Brighton Writers There's a thing in certainly in a couple of European cities and I think also in Glasgow where there's literally a vending machine of short stories No which it means because I always think of when I'm speaking with kids about um reading those people who are voraciously into reading or read about 900 books a year and those kids who just don't read Mm -hmm. uh, because it's not as you say it's not part of their experience but I've not yet met a kid particularly who's found it boring it's just just not part of their experience Mm -hmm. and 
with a book, you know, literally a paperback book, it's one of the most portable, it's more portable than a DVD or a streaming it device. It doesn't run out of battery. It doesn't run out of battery, and it can be literally a thing that you can sink two seconds into, or 20 seconds into while you're waiting for a bus, uh, and then put it back again. Mm. Um, and I'm not particularly sure where I was going. I had to enter that sentence before I started it, and <laughs> now I'm, I'm lost. But what then, it, what we did want to move on to is when you, when you are a writer, speaking as a writer, what do you write? I write short stories. Well, what kind of short? <laughs> you, you spoke about um, you didn't say the word macabre. You said uncanny when you were talking about the um, short stories you were, you were reading that you were enjoying. But yeah, what's your short story jam? Mine are very much not uncanny. They're super realist. Um, a lot. Um, to be honest with you, um, the irony of starting all these writing groups and communities is that I've never written less in my life. Yeah. But what I am part of is my own a writing group where I'm a member and if I wasn't part there's just five of us we meet actually we're meeting this evening we meet every other Monday evening um, and we close read each other's work so I have to produce something every few months and if I didn't have to do that I wouldn't have written anything so um, I mostly um, write based on I have um, a very overactive imagination and a very busy brain as I'm sure many creative people do and I get quite a lot of um intrusive thoughts based you know that come from my anxiety and one thing that I started doing last year after a particularly difficult time was was you know not writing these are by no means kind of mental health stories but they're based on awful thoughts that I've had that I've then can turn into characters and really unlikable characters so I write a lot of quite vile unlikable characters and quite a lot of you know real true stuff about relationships um and and the kind of the the worst they bring out in all of us that's interesting I was reading uh, a review, a uh, retrospective review of um, Catastrophe, the TV team oh, series. Oh, yes, yeah. And that spoke at least briefly about how compelling and lovable these essentially horrible characters yeah. were. And so that's what I wanted to ask is how do you, if you've indeed thought about it in a particular sense, how do you make these dreadful characters worth reading? I think they're... Um I don't think that characters need to be likeable, they just need to be believable, mm-hmm. or vulnerable, or funny. There has to be, you know, so for instance, um, you know, we look at some of the, the most famous characters in history, like Holden Caulfield yeah. in The Catcher in the Rye. He's not a likeable character, but there's something compelling about him. There's something that we love about him. He has a certain mannerism, or something that we can really grab onto. Like, I think that what, what unlikable characters can do in literature is, um, is really open up open us up and our kind of those those dark bits of our brain that we don't want to necessarily think about and um and put voice to to the kind of worst parts of ourselves you were saying that um some of the short stories come from your overactive imagination which can be another way of coding that as um, you're always having some ideas and stuff mm. you've got a response it does writer's block exist oh that's really interesting um I don't know. I don't know because I wouldn't say that I had writer's block at the moment. I have time block and money yeah. block. And but if I don't work, then I'm not earning cash so that I can't write. Sure, but you don't essentially run out of ideas. And so other no. people who say, oh, I don't know what my next idea is. I've run out of ideas. I can't write. They're not talking about time. They're talking about literally a lack of ideas. Is that, a, in your humble opinion, is that actually a thing? I think it's more of a buzzword than it is an actual thing. I think... What people might not have is time, space and energy. But I don't think that creative people fall short of ideas. I look at every single person that I've ever written with or worked with 
and I don't think they're ever short of ideas. I think they might be short of time and money and perspective, or they might be really busy in another part of their life. They're just their brain isn't just able to open up to it. But I think everyone has ideas. You know, all the time. Even if you don't read, you know, we're look around you. You know, if you told someone to write a story right now about the West PR, I'm sure everyone could come up with an interesting concept. It's just people aren't asked and people aren't necessarily encouraged. And if that bit of your brain stopped, then then I think that's the block. I don't think. I don't think people ever have no ideas. No, I've always thought that if, 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 you're, if you're pissed off that somebody um, hit the uh, traffic light button after you already hit it and you're waiting, that's that idea, that story. I think as soon as you've got that's a response a mm-hmm. or reaction to, a, to your life, mm. then you, you have a story. Yeah. So with that in mind then, um, if, somebody, if somebody in a group that you were either running or you were a part of came to you and said... I've run out of ideas I, I, I don't know what my next plot is I don't know what my idea is and if we, you and I essentially in our unsympathetic mode don't believe that there's a writer's block if somebody came up to you and goes no I, no, I've, no, I have got a writer's block what would be your advice? Um, I would, this is really interesting because I've never once given anyone the opportunity to have writer's block because every <laughs> single class that I run I'm like, well, this is what we're doing today. And if you can't come with an idea, I will give you an idea. Um, so actually, that's no one's ever... People, people sometimes look at me when I say, right, this is what we're doing next week. You know, have a think about that. And at the beginning of that week, they might have thought, God, I have no idea what... To, for instance, travel writing we did the other week. I have no idea what to write. I haven't been away for years or um, I don't feel any connection with the outdoors or other cities or, you know, I don't really leave the house much. But every, you know, which is an extreme so For thing. me, straight away, that we are good. Well, that story then, that I have yeah, no opinion yeah, about travel. Exactly. And actually, the stuff that people came out with during travel writing, a lot of it was quite dark and disastrous and, and not the kind of travel writing that I thought they'd come up with. <laughs> so by theming each week, I don't really... I want to make it as accessible as possible and give, give people the opportunity. No one has ever come to me people have come to me and said I've got too many ideas yeah what one do I pursue that's what I get a lot more than I cannot write um and I think yeah like I said I it's not something that I'm particularly familiar familiar with because um because I haven't really you wouldn't come to one of my classes if you um you know if you never ever had any ideas Mm. and you wouldn't come to a writing retreat to sit for four hours if you didn't have something that you wanted to work on I guess timed exercises that's just another way of saying deadlines which infamously are very useful but I never say deadline and I'll never ever I will never talk to anyone about word count that's irrelevant to me you might write one page and someone might write I had someone write 7,000 words in a few hours before that's fine I've also had someone write one page of handwritten A4 that's also fine so I don't want that competitiveness to it because it's not about it's not about quantity it's not even about quality it's just about writing what you want to write yeah it's about sharpening the tool isn't it it's about sort of because yeah, there can be a story that's essentially a good story and your first, second, ninth draft might be it might be still be better than anything that you've read on the Kindle recently but you in your heart without any sense of self-doubt will recognise oh it's still crap mm. but it's about sharpening that tool and Absolutely. sort of getting it better um, so short I have a thing about or a theory about short stories on the Kindle I think the, the idea that the, the Kindle is going to or is in the process of revolutionising and resurrecting the the concept of the short story because um, mm. I'm just about too young or old, can't remember which way it goes down I've missed all the era of short story publishing, you know, all those that golden era of magazines that were publishing short stories mm-hmm. and stuff and 
in the 70s that just dropped out of the market and there, there wasn't a thing anymore and it's all been about advertising space now but now that people can self-publish on uh, Kindle or whatever there's it seems to be a much more a revolution in the concept of short stories and um, some of those short stories being options and going on further and people creating uh, their calling card their business card out of short stories before they move on to novel mm-hmm. um, I say that and that seems to be like a new idea to you. I was hoping that we could go somewhere with yeah, that. Yeah, but... no, that's, it's really interesting that you say that. So my, um, my experience of writers writing short stories is that they, there are lots of competitions that are yes. really good and dedicated for short stories. And that is the advice that I give, is just keep submitting to short stories because then you have to polish something. And it's interesting that you say, I have seen the most success from self-published books um, comes from returning characters, series, and genre fiction. Um, so I don't actually know much about publishing them yourself online because that's not how I would ever consume them. Mm. But not for any particular reason, just that um, I'm not part of that community and yeah. I don't know about it. But um, I would. The thing about self publishing is also that to do it well, which you absolutely can, you need to become a publisher. So, you know, being an editor isn't enough. You have to be a cover designer or know what it should look like. I get sent a lot of submissions and say, oh, don't worry, I've designed the cover and it looks like nothing you would ever see or ever put out in a bookshop. Um, sans serif or comic sans. Oh my gosh, absolutely, you know, awful, bad Photoshop. Um, you need to become a designer, an editor, um, you need to understand about typesetting, you need to understand about proofreading. This is to do it well. Yeah. But then that's just creating the book. Creating the book isn't the hard bit. Most people can do that with the right advice. It's marketing it and it's finding your audience. And it's about search engine optimization and advertising and all of this stuff. And then also a lot of competitions won't accept submissions if they've been published. So if that then counts as being published on Amazon Kindle, you know, you might be shooting yourself in the foot there. So that's all I really have to say about publishing your own short stories online um, is that I'm probably, I don't really understand it, but, but there, are, there are pros and cons. Yeah, to that. but it is important to point out that yeah, a lot of certainly on self publishing uh, on Kindle, yeah, it's demonstrably true that uh, it's a lot of genre fiction. It's book series of seven books yeah. where we are exploring that world, lots of world building mm-hmm. and grand um, authors. Yeah, you know. and I mean, that's goes from in in terms of traditional publishing that goes back to Lord of Rings to JK Rowling mm-hmm. whatever but now there's a whole and that's what again hashtag writing community if you sort of like put that into your search engine that's a significant amount of the writers in there are doing that sort of work yeah and and there is a really supportive self-publishing community as well I'm just so anti people being snobby about books and publishing similarly I get sent quite a lot of um, badly self-published books and then have to tell people why I don't think it's appropriate to you know include them on the podcast or to publish them or this and that and um, you know that's another difficult thing because you can't expect everyone to be good at everything no um, you know, most people that even work in publishing wouldn't be able to, you know, if you work in big publishing, you might be an amazing commissioning editor, but you're not a designer. Yeah. Um, you know, so th- there are some things that, that just don't add up and it's very difficult to then say to people, look, it's just not good enough. Yeah. Because it's not often. So, um, and in terms of with the uh, Radio Refurb uh, show, which we've actually spoken about very little, uh, and the retreat what, what, what's coming up for you and your your many portfolio uh, works uh, later in 2020 yeah 
Hi, what is going on? I'm running, I will be running my next 10 week course from, I think it's March the 6th, if that's a Friday, for 10 weeks through to the beginning of May, um, which um, you'll be able to find out details about. I normally post them on Twitter um, and on Eventbrite, if you just search West Hill Writing, um, it should come up there. Um, I will be carrying on my day jobs. Um, so I work for two, several publishers. Um, one of them is based in Brighton, one just outside of Brighton. Um, I'll be carrying on working with them. Do those publishers um, produce particular types of books? Um, so I work with um, Red Door Press and Red Door publish a range of books with a really different and interesting publishing model. Um, so we publish everything from kind of commercial women's fiction, through crime and thrillers, series, but then also business, personal development, self-help, all of those kind of things, which actually almost is a, is a blessing and a curse because um, people have the opportunity to work you know, with a big list of, and reach lots of different audiences, but then you also have to find those audiences, whereas most publishers or imprints will publish a certain type of book. Um, I also work with Myriad Editions, who are based in Hove, um, between Hove and Oxford, and they are an imprint of New Internationalist, and they publish many less books, literary fiction, um, they publish literary fiction, they publish graphic novels, um, and then political non-fiction, so some really um, interesting feminist books there. They publish the Women's Atlas as well, which I would recommend everyone have a look at. We've got some really great books coming out, and I've just... Um, I probably can't talk about the name of the book yet, but I've just done my first um, commission for them from by a writer who I met at Winchester Writers Festival, who I'm really excited about because I normally work in in a different side of the business. So it's nice to be able to, um, you know, dip my toe in that part of, of Myriad. I want to go back in that sentence a bit and pick up on the the Woman's Atlas. Yes. Uh, that, uh, that sounds. I know what it sounds like, but uh, to me, what it sounds like, but. Go into detail what that is. Oh, by Janie Seeger, who is an incredible feminist scholar, and she um, is an infographic atlas about the state of women, the state of the world, and women. Yeah. Um, so they have a they'll have a whole section um, about statistics of FGM, or they'll have um, you know child marriage and all the if you think about any issue that you know period poverty all the issues that affect women all over the world and it's a really it's an infographic yeah. look at that it's amazing and a great gift for anyone yeah and so uh, that's um the publishing houses or what else is uh, coming up for you uh, or your work in 2020 I will be doing, carrying on doing one-on-one -on -one work that I do with authors to help them shape their ideas into books. Um, I do manuscript reports and edits, so I'll be doing a few more of them. Um, developing, hopefully, I'm trying to develop a writing retreat in Spain with some of my friends who also do a great podcast called The Yank and the Limey. Um, and one of them is another writer and one of them is a yoga teacher and we're hoping to kind of put together writing yoga retreats in Spain. I'm guessing you are available for commissions and... For, I am! Yeah. No, um, I don't have much space, no, but, um, but if it's the right project, then yeah. I'll always try and... Or if I can't do it, find someone who'd be good for it. In the first instance, we'd find you on Twitter um, yes. under... Um, Anna M. Burt, B-U-R-T-T. And um, this leads in neatly to our, the three questions that we tend to close our interviews uh, with guests on. Um, all of which actually seem, I don't think I've had a guest yet that, we've had a guest yet that um, suits all these questions quite so well. I'm um, flattered yeah. already. <laughs> we, we, we've been waiting for you for five years. Um, <laughs> so the first question then is, um, when you are busy reading, you curl up with a, a book or you're writing, um, 
and it's not at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there somewhere in Brighton that you, you really want to give a shout out? Is there like a, a good, good sofa and good coffee that you want, you'd curl up with and go, this is where I hang out? I'm a connoisseur of who has the best coffee um, for the most reasonable price and the fastest Wi-Fi. Um, I love <laughs> the um, Flying Saucer Cafe in the open market. Um, Nigel there and I have um, kind of built quite a nice friendship. Um, their food is really good. It's literally next door to Radio Reverb. Yeah, and it's it? next yeah. door to Reverb. And they have a nice little garden area. I really like people watching. I like being surrounded by sound while I work. Their Wi-Fi is good. Um, I also like the co-hos. Um, I'm a co-ho-ho and like to go <laughs> between the Ship Street one and I, the Queen's I didn't know Road that, that, one. There was a hashtag, co-ho-ho. There's actually not, um, but, but should, I just made should, that yeah, up yeah, yeah, and good. I would like to take 10% of yeah. anyone that uses that. Um, and um, that's mostly where I work because I work in an office a couple of days a week as well and I do quite a lot of work from home but I find it very distracting to work at home because I'm renovating my house so I also just always want to be doing DIY and not work. There's something something very um, alluring about the idea of living in Brighton making your career in books and publishing chatting to writers at least once a month uh, nurturing the work of new writers and renovating your own sort of Brighton home. You, you, you seem to be like in the middle of like a, a, a mid-90s Nescafe advert. It's, uh... <laughs> Although I don't eat Nestle. Uh, well, <laughs> and it yeah, happened since enough. I was yeah. a child. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, and it's... getting political about it. It's all <laughs> eating all the boxes. Um, no, it is really good and I'm really happy. I think um, I'm really happy with the life that I had without being too morbid about it. Um, I was really young when my mum died and she... I'm now over half of her age. And I've always had this thing that she really drummed into me since I was a kid. Um, that don't, And she really, I think she set me up for this. And she was just like, don't ever do work that you don't love. Don't ever make compromises, um, you know, if you're not happy. And um, it's really, really important. So I feel like almost that my drive comes from that. Yeah. A lot of my drive comes from like, life is fucking short. You know, I'm already over half her age. She didn't know that she was going to die when she was in her early 50s. So let's just, you know, make make it all count and make it all worth something. There's definitely not going to be a better line to close this interview on, but I am going to cheapen it by asking the other questions. But that, that, that should be where we end it. <laughs> um, but I, I will ask you uh, the other questions, which is, are you reading anything or listening to anything at the moment that you're really devouring you want to give a shout-out to? Um, I want to give a shout-out to really good question um i wish that i had my phone on me because i've been listening to um portuguese feminist rap music that my brothers put me onto and i can't remember the name of them but i can tell you guys afterwards and maybe you can do a link just so good um and books at the moment um i read anything that my friend elizabeth who i have on the podcast recommends because she's amazing so i would just say go into city books and ask for elizabeth and ask what she's reading and then read it i read a book called white houses recently by amy bloom which was about the um the lesbian affair between eleanor roosevelt and leonora hick and it was absolutely mesmerizing so i think everybody should read that please and it's nice and short excellent and the final question i have for you is this when you were a kid, uh, did you have an idea for a thing, be it a story, be it an invention, uh, that, <laughs> oh, that'll be good, I, I, I'll do that one time, and then you didn't. And then somebody else had the same idea, but actually invented the internet, or actually wrote Star Wars, and they have, essentially, your idea 
but they got there first. I think this with every app, but I'm not <laughs> actually sure if it was my idea. Um, I think I invented Shazam before Shazam uh, was Shazam. Yeah. Um, but, but clearly I didn't. Um, oh, no, no one's used um, one of my... Um, my most lucrative future ideas you but might want to be careful about this because if you say it now then it's out there <laughs> it's quite stupid okay go on I've got, I've got a few so quite a lot of them are probably not, not podcast friendly but it's called Yocktails and it's, it's a yoga cocktail bar um, and there's a, there's a cocktail named after every yoga move. It's like the downward facing dog is like the Long Island iced yep. tea. Um, and and um, but you can also like go upstairs, do a bit of yoga, come downstairs, have a couple of cocktails. Are there are there hot nice. are there hot yoga tails? Um, there are, but I'm quite anti hot yoga because okay. it makes me pass out. Um, <laughs> so well, I don't as, like as a good it. cocktail should. That's <laughs> a good co- no, is there? Yeah. Um, so um, so that's one of my stupid ideas in Brighton. But it just feels like a Brighton thing to do. Yeah. Um, but in no, basically the feminist bookshop are living my dream. Um, yes. We were talking about that earlier because it's an event space, um, a great bookshop. They do really nice coffee. Um, they have lovely, tasty treats, um, beautiful tote bags, and um, and it's in a really nice location in Brighton. Yes. And Ruth lives above it, so she's living my dream. So I might just vicariously live through her for a while. That seems fair. Here's a question I haven't asked anybody before. Uh, it's a, a cute one to end on, I guess. How do you feel when you're lost in a book? Oh, I think the point is is that I don't feel. And I think for me, reading has always been a really good escape. And getting lost in a book means that I forget everything that's going on and I can just get completely in that zone. So depending on what I'm reading is how I'm feeling. So I read the whole of um, Sarah Ann Dukes' book called Outside on a plane in a really short amount of time it's about being trapped and I don't like flying and and there was something really immersive about being trapped on a plane and reading this book about this girl that's trapped in a um in a room um and I think that 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 feeling I always have this this kind of joke well I mean it's just what happens that when I get to the end of the book I always slow right down because I'm really scared to end it because you're so in that world and then you lose it and then I'm kind of I've got you know I'm fearful of being just spat out bereft yeah yeah and being bereft after reading a book is a real thing book bereavement actually there's a book that I should mention that I really love called um, The Novel Cure um, which is an A to Z of literary remedies so and it's the best thing to buy for anyone that loves books so you know you'll be going through a breakup or you'll be going through anxiety or um, what's the word when you can't sleep insomnia and it will suggest all the books that you should read oh perfect um, when you're going through one of those things so I think um, you can prescribe yourself books I love that thank you very much thank you so much for having me thank you this has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast presented by Andrew Allen produced by Michelle Donkin music is Chapstick by Everett Armand Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our website is castironbrighton.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.